This is the Inside Track podcast by the BVRLA. Join us as we speak to high-profile guests from across rental, leasing and fleet as they discuss their careers, react to the latest news and look at what may be coming in the future. Hi, welcome to the Inside Track, BVRLA's podcast. Those of you who are sort of keen-eared might notice that um, I'm not Tom or Adam, your usual hosts, but today... uh, my name is Rachel. I'm the public affairs manager at the Beaver LA, and um, I'm hosting a special podcast uh, to talk about politics, which is obviously always a rather polarizing uh, topic. Um, but don't worry, we've got some expert voices here to guide us through what the political landscape might mean for the industry. Um, and I'm today joined by Laura from Enterprise and Danielle from Octopus. I'll let them introduce themselves a little bit first, um, and then we'll start to dig into what um, the latest news and the latest happenings in Westminster and around the country might mean for the automotive industry over the next 12 months. So I'll hand over to you first, Laura. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks for having me on. So. So yeah, so I'm Laura, I'm from Enterprise, so I'm the Head of Government Affairs uh, for the UK and Ireland. So I look after everything we do that involves either government policy or interacting uh, with government and um, probably at all levels, so national, local and devolved governments as well. Um, And I'm actually um, in Ireland at the moment as we film this podcast, so I do also cover Ireland, although I'm not going to talk about that today. Hi, I'm Danielle Dowd. I'm Head of External Affairs and Business Development at Octopus Electric Vehicles. And if you don't know um, about our business, we are the whole EV package. Um, we have a leasing company where we supply electric vehicles, charger and energy. We sit within Octopus Energy Group. Um, and similarly, I look after our, our campaigns and um, engagement with, with government. Um, like my law as well as well here within Oxford's ED. Fabulous. It's wonderful to have you both join today. Um, <clears throat> to I won't say veterans because maybe that's offensive. Um, to expert heads um, to talk about talk about um, this subject um, with me. So why are we talking politics today? Um, well, if you just look at the headlines or anything that's going on in the news right now, it's an incredibly interesting time. Um, for for the political parties there's an awful lot to unpack an awful lot that's that's going on um but what does it actually mean for our industry and what does that what what can businesses be expecting from potentially a a new government or the continuation of the current government in in a short short space of time we're going to sort of delve into that a little bit more um i want to start off though uh laura you were at the party conferences um earlier well a few weeks ago now, um, at the time of the recording of this podcast, um, what was what was your sort of feeling on on that? We obviously heard that there were announcements coming through um, about the the phase out target, the sort of the changes that government were saying, and then Labour sort of rowing back, and um, the automated strategy coming out from Labour. So we seem to be hearing a lot of buzz, but what was it like on the ground? Well, I think. Labour conference, I think, has as as everyone has sort of discussed before, was was did have a buzz. That was very well attended. It's very busy. There's a lot of people there. But I I also think because of that that there were a lot of different issues on the table. So my sort of sense was that yes, there was some announcements around transport and there was some events, but they didn't really feel like some of the um, things that we talk about as a as a membership necessarily were featuring at the sort of very top 
level of the discussions. There wasn't a huge number of events um, around that. It wasn't hugely high profile, but there was such a lot going on. Maybe it was sort of a reflection of that, that those issues didn't necessarily cut through. But I also think that there was a lot of discussion around, I suppose, what you'd say are more traditional labour transport topics, things around buses and public transport, um, as opposed to what I suppose we would be more looking at, things around kind of, I suppose, shared transport, electric vehicles and and that side of things. Um, there was obviously a clear focus on things like decarbonisation, net zero from that side of labour, but I don't necessarily think that that was... Um, you know, solely focused on transport. There was a huge amount of discussion around energy, for example, um, in that context. But then when you look at that compared to Conservative Conference, again, I felt like Conservative Conference, aside from, I suppose, the the discussions around HS2, which really overshadowed a lot of things, um, the what, you know, transport wasn't high on the agenda at all. I mean, I, I was trying to work out whether, I, you know, some of the ministers that we would maybe have engaged with I, were certainly very low profile um, at conference. Um, and the person that I saw most uh, there speaking around transport was actually Andy Burnham. He's obviously the Labour mayor for Greater Manchester because he just announced his new uh, B network, which is the bus and the tram integration um, that they've taken in-house at TFGM. So those things, I think, featured a lot more highly, which I guess was a reflection of the fact that the that some of the, you know, we, we've got a bit of work to do to make the issues that I suppose are priority to, to us as BVRLA members kind of feature highly on that. Yeah. And and did you did you think that that kind of was trickling all the way through? So you're saying that so from the top level, sort of the, the conversations that were going on as well with just the rank of our members and stuff, did that seem to sort of mirror it, that it seemed to be not really necessarily featuring people's radars as much? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think there was anyone that I, I didn't have too many people sort of wanting to come up and talk about electric vehicles or or in that sort of thing, um, to be honest. Um, there were quite a few private events, private roundtables, private discussions, um, and obviously some of the manufacturers had a big presence and things. Um, but again, I think just it wasn't what I would say is one of the, the top agenda points for discussion at the conference. And that could be because some of it is much more policy heavy, much more detailed. Um, and so it's not necessarily as sort of... Um, I suppose, normal for, for conferences to have that kind of very detailed policy discussion, I suppose. Exactly. I mean, Danielle, I know that you, you weren't at the conferences, but, you know, watching from from the other side of things, um, you know, what, what do you sort of uh, take from that? Yeah, I was just really interested listening to Laura kind of set out the mood music where we've had quite a number of like publications and announcements. And I do wonder whether, um, to your point about um, Labour, you know, people not necessarily asking about EVs, there was the publication of the the Labour plan for the auto sector, which felt really comprehensive and thoughtful about how Labour thinks about the sector as a whole. It is, you know, that document was a real statement on... um, electric vehicles as a key plank of Labour's economic, modern, industrial strategy. So adding those two kind of comments about Laura's comments about the mood music at conference together with this overarching mood music of kind of support um, for this as an economic growth um, driver over the kind of longer term, I think is just really interesting um, context. Um, 
for our sector over the kind of like medium to longer term. Yeah, exactly. Because obviously this this might well have been the last conference potentially for a general election. Um, we were just discussing before we went on online with this that by the 30th of January there has to be another another election. 30th of January, I should say, 2025, not not next year. Let's not panic everybody. Um and uh, and again, um, you know, it seems like everyone's setting out their stores a little bit with that in mind. Um, obviously, manifestos won't get released until we know exactly when the when the election is going to happen. But did did you get the kind of feeling, Laura? Like it felt like there was that was that energy sort of tangible there that people could almost taste the election coming, or was it more relaxed than that? Um, well, I think certainly from a Labour perspective, you got there was a real sort of sense that they felt like a party on the way into into government so it felt like there was a lot of positivity and a lot of you know a lot of um people not necessarily wanting to be complacent but also there was a real excitement factor that obviously after quite a few years in opposition that they were sort of on the verge of doing that um but what it didn't necessarily feel like was that they actually as a party really wanted to set out i suppose a very detailed policy agenda on some of the items that i think they were almost wanting to to say enough to have things to talk about but not necessarily set things out in writing or policy ideas out that they thought would um be too early to do so what even when they don't know when the next election is i felt like the conservative party conference again it did feel like um a lot of there was a lot of discussion that it felt like that might be the sort of last conference for a while where the conservative party was the party of government at the conference and um, but you know there wasn't a huge sense that an election was imminent at conservative conference either it didn't feel like a party gearing up for a, an election in the short term um certainly either which i think is interesting because it's almost that everyone you know we're sort of in the run-up to an election but as you just said there we could you know if it take you know if, if you push it to the fullest point that we're in a run-up that could be you know 14 15 months away which is still a huge amount of time when you actually consider what would you know a government might have to face within if you think about what was happening you know that you know that length of time ago from today what you know there's a huge difference between where the government could be now and then yeah and talking about timings um what what would you be your guess of i mean it's obviously as long as a piece of string like you say it could be anywhere from sort of tomorrow until you know 15 months from now but what what do you both sort of what's what's your gut telling you as of today that you think when do you think we might expect it i won't hold you to it i promise um danielle what do you what's your gut I, you? I mean i yeah i'm reluctant to kind of uh place my bets that's one for the kind of prime minister and his office but um i think that i you know the chancellor and prime minister have said that they've got um some kind of very clearly set out um deliverables that they want to have a clear run at um, inflation, um, immigration, and, and and the five key pillars. So they're going to want um, to get as good a run at, at delivering those um, aims as possible. But I'm not going to. I'm really, yeah, I'm not going to put my um, my name against or I got to date or a tie or a place. Yeah. Um, well, so I I have actually internally picked an actual date. Uh, oh, okay. I, uh, which is quite funny which I, um, yeah so I have actually said what I think what the actual date will be but I'm not going to I'm not going to say that here but I, I certainly think it will be towards the back end of next year probably autumn next year I think around this sort of time next year is what we're looking at because 
I think from a you know from a conservative government perspective, Rishi Sunak's got his pledges and he needs to give it some time for those to I guess be things that can be said to be happening. So things around inflation and the economy, etc., gives them the best chance. I also think that sort of winter elections traditionally are not popular affairs. Um, so that that's kind of what I think. But I also um, I do think as well there is a bit of a hint from the fact that if the you know we are going to have a prorogation and new king speech with legislation. So we all know that obviously passing legislation takes a bit of time. So I think there will be a bit of a hint for how, from from that as to how much is actually committed to in that as to whether we're looking at the possibility of a shorter spring election or we're going to go a bit longer because obviously there'd be no point the government committing to and introducing a lot of legislation that it's it's got no intention of having enough time in Parliament to pass because legislation takes quite a while to get through both houses. So um, I think that's worth bearing in mind as well. But certainly I'm, I'm looking towards the back end of next year, but there is obviously other things, for example, a US election, which is obviously fixed for the first week in November to bear in mind um, from an economy and market perspective where you wouldn't expect uh, the UK to to clash directly with the US election, for example. Um, I wouldn't, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just sort of thinking about, I was just musing about that as to whether I think that that would happen. But, and then there's other things, um, you know, there's there's elections already fixed for the summer, isn't there? Um, for various mayoral elections and things as well. So there's, there's quite a few different factors at play, but certainly I think the main one is that the government needs a bit longer to fill those, you know, to fulfill those pledges if it's going to be able to say it has done so. Yeah, because that's the other option that there might be a, a spring election that's timed with those other local elections and mayoral elections and just do it as a big bundle to try and maximise turnout for all of that. Um, and like you say, the, the later we go, nobody wants to be traipsing out in the dead of winter to, to be voting. Um, unless but you then, can rely on postal votes. Well, so. yeah, and that's that. And traditionally, obviously, I mean, and I don't necessarily I think this, this might be the case this time around, but obviously traditionally... Um, if you're an incumbent government, obviously, and then yeah, not having lots of sort of, I suppose, labour activists able to to be out on the streets and wanting to be out and out for for long hours might be something you're attracted to as an idea. But um, I, I think it probably cuts both ways anyway. So because obviously, but that's potentially, you know, that's I've heard a lot of people say that, but I'm not sure that that's that's going to be enough to make a difference. So then what we might be looking at what people can expect potentially next year this time next year the party conferences might be the springboard of what we're going to expect from manifestos and then sometime shortly after that the election gets called um and so we've kind of we might know more about what exactly we can expect from from all the different parties and this time next year potentially um if that if those timings sort of come through yeah, I think potentially. I don't. I don't know whether there is going to be party conferences next year or not. I, I haven't really. There's been some speculation about that. I suppose it'd be a bit of a dead giveaway if um, neither party organises a a conference that both assume it's uh, assume that's going to be sort of around election time. But um, I yeah. I so I I don't know. I don't know what point we'll realise whether there is or is not a conference. But a certain thing you're writing at this time next year will probably be when. Um, you know, even if it's if it's not, even if the an election hasn't officially been called at this stage, I think it will be the time when all parties will be setting out their stall because the January deadline will be approaching. So, um, it will certainly be a fairly crucial point in time. And then you mentioned um, that you know the the King's speech and uh, 
that's all happening early early November, uh, state opening of Parliament. Um, there has been some speculation around reshuffles um, ahead of that in government. Do do you both what what are your feelings that if there is a reshuffle, it probably would be the final reshuffle for the government, I would imagine um, before another election. Do you think that might influence what policies coming out of out of the departments, or do you think it might be a reshuffle in name only and pretend like the writing is already there of what what we can expect? I mean, well, how is this sort of government? You get different people in power, don't you? You get some who who want to sort of lead from the front, and you get some who give who sort of allow everybody to make up their own minds and and take a bit more ownership over the departments. How do you think that? I mean, what's well, your take? Go at that rate. Yeah, which is just um, my um, my thoughts on that would be clearly um, the leaders, the leader of the opposition and, and the PM. There's always a lever on kind of patronage um, and, you know, rewarding kind of supportive and loyal um, um, folks and a reshuffle and clearly that's always a lever for the leader of any party. Um, but I think the the heavy lifting on the policy that we will see, as, as kind of Nora says, there's going to be, um, you know, legislation coming forward in the King's speech and then it's manifestos. Um, so, so I don't think it'll be, um, yeah, something that's going to influence departments as you said it will be pure politics it'll be it'll be proper political play at that point yeah i think i agree because I, I think the the some of the speculation that i've seen around sort of a government reshuffle from from the prime minister i think there's certainly been more on the kind of political side will he use it as a, a way of pe- taking people out that he you know of the cabinet that he thinks are either elect you know politically uh, a problem for him with the electorate or um you know they're not particularly popular with um, some voters, or are not doing you know a, a causing controversy in certain areas, or to either to bring some people in who I guess are, are sort of real loyalists. But I think he you know he did um, there has been fairly recent reshuffles to do things like that anyway. So I'm not really sure um, what else could be done. The other thing to say as well is obviously when you get towards an election where you're as a government trading in the polls, and it looks like you know unless something drastically changes, you'll be out of power. Um, the, the willingness of people to necessarily put them forward for those big jobs doesn't isn't always there um for people who maybe want to concentrate on their constituencies and trying to hold their seats a bit more so um not not as, what I was sort of saying by that is there's not necessarily a huge bench of people waiting to rush into various roles I would say there's, there's a lot of MPs who have already said they're going to step down at the next election as well so it's going to be quite an unusual election in that a lot of seats are going to be fought without an incumbent, um, which will be very interesting to see how those campaigns sort of, you know, if you don't have a track record to be held up against, um, you know, they're kind of wide open. Obviously, the by-elections recently have, and, and the polling recently has looked like you touched upon just then, Laura, not fantastic for government right now. But, I mean, we know from polls of the past that they don't always, you know, sort of ring true. Um I think you probably both agree that it probably would take a bit of a miracle right now for it to completely get a turn around. But fifteen months is a long time in in politics. Um, yeah, I, for me, I think what's more at play is is you know at the moment based the by election results. Obviously, by election results are not normally the best examples of what would happen in a general election. But in this case, I think the consistency of those results, um, I think is is pretty important because. The, all the recent results have been fairly 
similar in terms of the outcome. So I would say that on that in itself is, is a good factor to consider, even if you don't think by-elections are a great example. But the other thing I think um, is interesting from a, from a polls perspective is that um, at the moment, based on these, the kind of by-election outcomes in the polls, it's it's looking at a sort of very, the result will be a very big Labour majority. And I think more what's at play is to whether that is correct or you're looking at something which is either narrower or isn't a Labour majority. Because I think that seems to, to me to be more what's at play as to whether Labour can get enough to get over the threshold to be in power on their own or whether they're going to need someone or one of the other parties, someone like the Liberal Democrats or the SNP to have some arrangement to allow them to be in power. I think... At the moment, the 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 interesting thing for me when I look at it in the most recent by-election result was actually the one in, in Scotland, the Brother Glen um, mm-hmm. by-election, because that does indicate that if that, for example, was replicated, that the SNP's vote didn't hold up and Labour did better in Scotland, that really does make it a lot more, um, a lot easier for them to to get that majority in, in the rest of the, the whole of Parliament. I was going to add to that also the Bedfordshire result. Mm-hmm. I mean, as you say, it's never sensible to kind of um, extrapolate a by-election for a general election for lots of reasons. But it was really interesting to see where you might have a Lib Dem facing three-way marginal and Labour still hold up. I'm sure Labour HQ will be really um, kind of interested in, in what went on in Bedfordshire. Um, I, I'm, I know we've spoken a lot about politics today and party politics in the general election. Um, but I wondered, um, just thinking about um, a lot of, I'm, I'm assuming some of the listeners will be responsible for policy in their organisations and wondering, I guess there's a point here that says that um, just con- about continuing to engage with officials, there's a lot of work to get done, especially for our sector. We're all trying to get um, EVs adopted as, as quickly as possible. As you said, 15 months is a really long way away. And I just wondered what I guess we're all doing um, to kind of still and um, get get some work done and, and keep keep um, you know how officials work and um, through Perdon and things like that or not in the next eighteen months. Just just a good point about how we're planning our next year, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I'm happy to to kick off on on that um, from the BBLA's perspective. We <clears throat> we're launching our own manifesto um, next month in Parliament um, at a reception. Um, and that's setting out what we want the next government, whoever that may be, um, what we need from them to support the fleet sector going forwards. Um, and they are very tangible asks, they're very concrete asks, they sort of plug in and play things um, that they can do to make it really easy, really straightforward, really clear. Um, and after we've launched that, we're going to be uh, engaging uh, fully over the next 15 months um, to try and... Uh, socialize that as much as possible um with officials and mps and candidates um and just try and make sure that you know you covered all bases and that everybody's aware of this because an election is is a big deal but at the at the end of the day it is just you know an election campaign is only a few weeks out of you know the entire time of the government so you need to try and make sure that as many people are aware of this stuff as you can and not just put all your eggs in one basket um so to speak yeah, and I think just on that, Rachel, as well, the, the obviously it's really good to have that BBRO manifesto really early because I think what it does allow us all to do then is is have those really key points that we can engage with from now and and, and make really consistent because I think then we're, we're speaking as one voice as a sector. But also I think um, 
you know, we don't know when the date of the election is going to be and we can't wait, as, as you just said, until the, there is an actual election because at that point, to be honest, if you haven't landed something, it's not going to be in a manifesto if you start engaging at the point an election's called. Um, and so I think we've got a really good opportunity now, yes, to keep working with government and keep working with, with officials, but also to look at actually what can we do with uh, with the Labour Party and with Labour politicians to to make them understand what it is that we are going to need as a sector to achieve those targets because we do know that Labour have committed to a lot of those targets around decarbonisation, phase out of, of petrol and diesel vehicles um, and things as well. So we know that that's the background to their their you know the policy that they're going to put in place. It's just that there may be you know what the opportunity for us is how we think they can get there. And um, so I think we've got a good opportunity now to do that. And Danielle, have you got anything anything to add? Um, no, I just I agree with that point. And um, you made a point earlier about um, a lot of kind of new candidates coming forward. So there's an opportunity there, um, uh, right from kind of getting to know who's uh, who's the voices in in the industry and things like that. Um, but I, I I suppose that'll come later. The other thing that um, uh, I've been really interested in, which we, we haven't touched on the Prime Minister's net zero um, speech, and I've been quite interested in some of the comments from like colleagues in the wider energy sector about, you know, the power of comms and um, us as an industry, um, just making sure that um, we're continuing to kind of um, communicate really clearly on, on what we're all trying to achieve here in terms of um, EV adoption in in kind of the legal net zero targets, the UK achieving some of those, and um, getting consumers to adopt on a, on a mass market setting and all that kind of stuff. That's kind of less policy, but it's still external affairs and, and kind of a comms point, which I found quite interesting. Yeah, it's one of those sort of artistries, I think, to to public affairs where you have to craft your argument to fit with the the narrative that's going on at the moment. Um, and and like you say, the the government is singing from one hymn sheet, Labour is singing from another, and it's just sort of uh, phrasing what we're asking for and making sure that we're speaking the right language to the right to the right parties yeah. to make sure that the importance of our sector is really being heard and really being considered. Um, there is that. yeah, and I think just you know on that as well, one of the other kind of key points is quite a few of the things that were part of the, that speech from Rishi Sunak are effectively things which are dealt with at a local level by local authorities as well. So one of the the key things is to not forget from our sector's perspective that a lot of actually the delivery of policies around shared transport are, you know, is by local authorities in local areas and they've got the powers to do that. So um, I think remembering that actually the, the kind of I suppose the the engagement with local authorities around uh, the the role of different kinds of shared transport um, in in sort of complementing their ambitions around public transport and things is really important because we've seen uh, particularly from Rishi on the things around sort of low traffic neighbourhoods clean air zones and things not necessarily being policies that he's um, particularly keen on especially things around the ULEs for example in London but at a local level obviously those councils still have air quality targets they need to achieve they still have their own ambitions to to achieve some kind of new transport options to help consumers move around so i think for us it's it's really important to not forget that actually engaging at a local level is probably where some of the impact might be and i know some of the work that 
that the BBRLA team have done around things like the fleet charging guide, for example, talks about that. So it looks at actually how we can engage with local authorities and what local authorities can do for the fleet sector around things like that as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think ahead of ahead of an election, everything's going to be a lot of a lot of work is going to be localized. And and on that point, what advice would you both have for any anyone listening today who's thinking, you know, what I I want to get a bit more involved in this side of things. I want to be talking to councillors, candidates, MPs. You know, how can I be helping? You know, get the message across about our our, our business and our sector. What kind of what are the easy steps maybe that they could be taking to to support? Because from my mind, the the thought that that's just sparked is doing something at a local level. Um, but I put it across to you to you both. What be your top tips? Well, I think that constituency link is often really important. So where you are a business that has local operations, to not necessarily forget that one of your major contacts could be your your local MPs for your different locations or the local politicians, local councils. So maybe for some people, if you're looking at, well, it it feels as a huge number of different places you could go, well, maybe start locally and see. But then the other option is obviously, um, and I would say this because um, I'm I'm the current chair, but be involved in the BBRLA's Public Affairs Committee, uh, Public Affairs Working Group, because that's really good and often using you know working with the BVRLA where you're representing the sector and having that kind of wider voice can amplify their messages if they don't necessarily have either internal resource or uh you know the internal team dedicated to doing that can sometimes help people as well mine's going to link to what Laura just said but it's not specifically like local or constituency level it's it's across the whole piece which is about the timing and about kind of um, getting the asks and repeating those asks with with a kind of message discipline and, and real clarity, um, and and joining up with other voices in the sector, which just kind of makes things clearer and more credible. Um, I think is always a good way to think about things, and 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 just how you're docking these messages in. Yeah, really good advice. Um, and watch this space for uh, some some resources and some more support coming coming imminently from the Beaver LA to support members with exactly that kind of engagement as well um, uh, both in terms of amplifying the message like you say Danielle it's the, the more voices singing together you know the, the stronger that message is and, and Laura that constituency like is so important it's, it's, it's doubly quadruply um, important when it comes to an election um, when people are really courting that local vote so yes if, even if you live in what you consider the middle of nowhere um right now is your is is the moment that your local mp your candidates are really going to be wanting to speak to you it's not all about london i think sometimes there's a natural tendency to think politics westminster london that's all that that really sort of matters but definitely not the case i would say um yeah and i think the only thing just to say on that as well when we're looking at you're looking at from constituency people maybe you don't have you can engage with two sides if you have a, a candidate for one party and you have an incumbent mp as a business you it, you know you are able to have um good conversations with both sides it's, you, you know, it's not almost kind of p- picking your political winner to do that as well so i think sometimes i've spoken to to some businesses that makes them a bit nervous but actually it is possible to balance those because obviously we're not asking for things that for as a party political we're speaking from a business perspective about what we need to kind of succeed and what we need from a policy perspective rather than 
um, we, you know, we're not we're not looking at it from a political perspective in that sense. Fantastic. Any final thoughts from from you both? Um, just kind of watch this space, I guess, with uh, with the the next fifteen months, six months. Who knows? Um, but I'm place your bets now on what Laura's bet has been for for the next election. It's Well, indeed. Well, I think they've all. I think um, a lot of people just come for the same date, but. Um, yeah, I will say that it, elections are normally Thursdays as well. So just, you know, that narrows it down a little bit more as well. So there we go. Um, fantastic. Well, thank you both ever so much for your time today. Um, it's been really great to sort of, uh, chew the fat on politics and what it means for the industry. Um, and yeah, I'd love to chat to you both again at some stage, maybe closer to, to an election, um, as well. And see what how this compares what our what our predictions and what our thoughts were right now compared to you know a few months time um but it's been absolutely fantastic thanks again ever so much um and thanks for listening everybody thanks for listening if you enjoyed this episode make sure you click the subscribe button please leave a rating or review and feel free to share this on your social platforms